Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. 1 Peter chapter 4, if you have your Bible open to that passage in Scripture, as we really get to what I believe is the heart of what Peter's been mentioning, alluding to, highlighting through the whole letter as he comes to this issue of people who know Christ as Savior still going through difficulties and suffering trials. This week I watched one of those TED Talks on YouTube. If you're not familiar with that, it's TED TED Talks. They have talks like short 15-minute talks on just about every imaginable topic in the universe. People step on a stage and they speak those. They're all over the world. And, and they're, one of the titles caught my eye. It, this was the title. Everything happens for a reason and other lies I've loved. So I thought, I'm going to watch that TED Talk. And I watched this gal. Her name is Kate Bowler. And she shared her story of finding out that she had cancer and how people would come to her and come to her husband. At one time, one man said, you know, she was in, I think it while she was in surgery, and he said, this person said to her husband, everything happens for a reason. And he said, oh yeah? What's the reason? No response. It intrigued me. I listened to the talk and she says some really, really impactful things and it's really her struggle of trying to understand that. But I want us to go to scripture and try to address when those kinds of things happen to people, what is happening? I'm entitled the message, Making the Most of Life's Trials. And you see that timing, you might think, man, that really, what do you mean making the most? That's what I mean. We want to make the most. We want to maximize the trials that God brings our way. Look with me at verse 12 in 1 Peter 4. Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal or trial comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of the Messiah or Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy at the revelation of his glory. And he he makes this point in verse 14. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Sounds like the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? Blessed are those who are persecuted. Because of the spirit of glory and of God, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And he makes a note here that people are going to suffer for other things. He says in verse 15, None of you, however, should suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, and in my translation it's in quotes because that's, that's the name that Christians were given. It's only used a few times in the New Testament. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he should not be ashamed, but should glorify God in having that name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household, that's us. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? And if righteous person is saved through diff- with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So, verse 19, he wraps it up. Those who suffer according to God's will should, while doing what is good, entrust themselves to a faithful creator. Peter talks about this fiery ordeal that, 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 that they're going to experience. Some have said that Peter's being prophetic there because he can see the the, the, uh, on the horizon that ro- the persecution of Rome is going to come and they're going to be suffering. Some had suffered some persecution at that point. Some have even said that Peter's alluding to how Nero in his persecution lit Christians on fire to, 
as a, as a torch to light his garden. We're, we're not sure, but Peter is saying there is a, a trial. You're in the midst of it right now, and it's going to get worse, and I want you to have hope. And that's why we've entitled this series Hope in Our Present Suffering. So several things that I want to highlight that, that Peter shares with us in this passage for us. First one is this. Number one, if you're taking notes, expect trials. Expect trials. He says it so clearly in verse 12. Dear friends, he's talking about followers of Christ, people who are believers, people who know Jesus Christ as Savior. You, dear friends, you believers, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes your way to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Expect trials. Trials are going to be a normal part of the Christian's life. God allows trials in our life because we live in a, in a fallen world. The Bible says that, that God causes the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. The, and, and it just is going to happen because in Genesis chapter 3, you read the story. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, sin entered in, in, into the world. And man began to die and things began to decay. And this is a result of the world we live in. Sometimes the, the difficulties that happen to us, whether it's a health crisis or something else in the environment, it's just because we live in a fallen world and God has allowed us to make that choice either to follow him or not follow him and mankind has chosen not to follow him. God sometimes allows us, Peter alludes to it here, to be t- for us to be tested. You can expect it. God will bring this trial to you to test you. Remember the story of Job. Satan came to God and said, what about your servant Job? And he would curse you if you removed everything. And God said, okay, you can deal with Job, only don't take his life. And, and God allowed Satan to tempt Job. And, and it ultimately became a test for Job that Job, toward the end of the book, he begins to understand what God was doing in that. Oswald Chambers says this, there are some things that can only be learned in the fiery furnace. Peter says this, is saying the same thing. There are some things, Christian... There are some things, follower of Christ, that can only be learned by you going through the fire, by you going through the furnace, by you having difficulty. In 1 Peter 5, we'll get to that eventually, but just kind of look across the page there. Be serious. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We're going to get to that when we get to chapter 5, but I just want you to know we can expect trials in our life. Some of those trials are God testing us. Other trials are Satan trying to break us, to to tempt us. Expect it. Don't be surprised. I wish we had not communicated this, but growing up in the church, this was communicated to me. It was never said, but I just got this message. When you become a Christian, everything's going to be all right. Anybody else get that message? (laughs) I did. If I become a Christian, everything's going to be okay. We talk about heaven. We talk about an abundant life. We talk about joy. We talk about... And so you just kind of think, well, then I'm not going to suffer anymore. And then I read what Peter says. Don't be surprised, Kevin, at the trial that comes your way. I should expect trials. Number two, and hang on, all right? I chose this word carefully. Embrace trials. Embrace trials. Look at verse 13 and 14. Peter says it even stronger than I did. Instead of being surprised, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, the Messiah, so that you may also rejoice with great joy at the revelation of his glory. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the glory of God rests on you. Peter says there should be joy. You should embrace the trial I think about leaning into the trial. 
When Kelly and I were pretty much newlyweds, we took a family vacation with her whole family to uh, South Padre Island, and we'd, I decided on the vacation I was going to do some things I'd never done. I was going to try a backflip off the diving board, and I did it, and it hurt, but I did it. I decided I was going to learn to sail, so we rented one of those little sailboats, something fish or something, I don't know what it's called, a little bitty boat, but so we, we called and checked out how much it cost, and they, they charged us for an hour to rent the boat and an hour for sailing lessons. I said, can I just pay for the hour to rent the boat? I don't want to pay for two hours. The guy said, you need the sailing lessons. Okay, am I glad I paid for the extra hour? He took us out with the wind at our back. Man, we sailed down the, the intercoastal waterway and got to the, to the bridge and came time to turn around. And I'm thinking, okay, we just sailed with the wind. How do we get back? And he showed us. It's called tacking, right, sailors? You crisscross. You actually sail into the wind. You have to embrace the wind to go to where you're going. And I thought, what a great picture of the Christian life. The trials, the storms are going to come my way, and instead of running from them, do you see that? I'm to embrace them. I'm to say, okay, Lord, I'm going, to, I'm going to go head on into that wind because you brought it here for a reason. The, the, one of the reasons in embracing uh, Peter Lucio here is that it gives us a deeper fellowship of our understanding of, of, of God through Jesus Christ. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, listen to what the psalmist said, verse 67 through 71. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good, and you do what is good. Teach me your statutes. The arrogant have, have smeared me with lies, but I obey your precepts with all my heart. Their hearts are hard and insensitive, but I delight in your instruction. Then he says this is verse 71. That's what I highlighted while I went to this. The psalmist says, it was good for me to be afflicted. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I could learn your statutes. He talks about the wicked smearing him with lies. Peter talks about the, 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 his readers being persecuted by people, by being, by being slandered. We talked about that last week in the first part of chapter 4. People are saying wrong things about you. They're, they're ridiculing you. They're slandering you. And the psalmist says, oh, that's a good thing. Because what does it do? It drives me. It drives me into my relationship in a deeper way. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. It's momentary. God is using that to produce, Andy preached on that a few weeks ago, how God is using us, using those things in our life. Listen to what Paul said in Romans, chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. We also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, proven character produces hope. Then fast forward to the book of James. James says it this way in chapter 1. Consider it great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and endurance must complete its work, that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Did you hear how many times in those passages I just lifted out a few? The, the, the scripture tells us to rejoice, to be joyful, to accept, to embrace our trials. Those difficulties that come our way should lead us into a deeper experience of joy. The choir sang about peace. That's not, not a peace that says everything's perfect. It means in the midst of the storm. Did you get that? That I'm going to have this peace. I'm going to have this level of joy. It's going to cause me to lean into Christ. In chapter 5 of the book of Acts, we have Peter and the other apostles getting arrested and the Sanhedrin harasses them. Listen to what the, the scripture says in verse 40. After the apostles had, had been flogged, 
beaten, whipped, tortured. After they'd been flogged, they ordered them to be not to speak the name of Jesus, and they released them. Listen to verse 41. As they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, they were rejoicing that they'd been counted worthy to be, dis- to d- be dishonored on behalf of the name. It is a privilege for the name of Christ to suffer persecution. It causes me to grow. Remember the story in Jeremiah. We've looked at this so many times of how Jeremiah goes to the potter's house and, and he observes the potter making the clay and the clay gets marred and, and the, the potter sets it aside when he wants to and Jeremiah says, or God says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, the potter can do whatever he wants with the clay because he's shaping it into something. And then he says to Jeremiah, communicate to the children of Israel, like clay in the potter's hand, you are in my hand. Clay just sits on the potter's wheel, right? And the potter does whatever the potter wants. That's this picture of saying, okay, God, here I am. I'm yours. I build my life upon you. I trust you. And God's going to grow us in that. We look at Romans 8, 28, 29, 30 all the time. For we know that all things work together for good for those who love God. That's followers of Christ who pursue him. Those who are called according to his purpose. And then he goes on to say, for those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's his purpose. If God is going to bring something into my life, into your life, that's going to make me more like Christ, should I run from it? The answer is no. If God's going to bring something into my life, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how much I I. I really am not enjoying a bit of it, but if it's going to make me lean into Christ more, it is a good thing I am to embrace that. Instead of asking, how can I get out of this trial? I need to be asking, what can I get out of it? Regardless of the cause, whatever it is God brings, nothing happens without God's permission. It's not so much what happens to you as what happens in you. And we'll talk about this in a minute, but not only what happens in you, but what ultimately happens through you. So, first of all, expect trials. Embrace them. Lean into that wind. Number three, examine your life. Examine your life. Look at verse 15. He says, none of you should suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, a meddler. So he's just giving some things. In other words, he's saying, first of all, you've got you've to check. You've got to check your life. And then he goes on to say that it's important for us to understand that God wants to use it for his glory. In the Old Testament, it's interesting, he says here in verse 17, the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. In the Old Testament, you you have constantly God dealing with the people of Israel before he dealt with the people, the outsiders, because he wanted to do a work in them so that he could have a word through them. I've got three questions that I I highlighted that that I think it's important to ask ourselves, and I think it's alluded to by what Peter says here. Whenever a trial comes into my life, I need to examine my life. Number one, is there any unconfessed sin in my life? Number one. That's the first place I should go. Could it be that this trial, that this difficulty, that this fire ordeal is God trying to get my attention because I am in disobedience? Do you know what most most people in the church run to? They ignore that one. They they go to other places. But that has to be the first question. God, is, is this happening to me because you're disciplining me? 
The writer of Hebrews says this, the Lord disciplines the one he loves in Hebrews 12. He punishes every son whom he receives. Endure it as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons or as children. For what son is there whom a father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. When there are things happening in your life, by God's disciplining hand, it's evidence that you're a child of God. In other words, when you disobey and you rebel and you walk away and you forsake the name of Christ... God's going to bring something into your life to draw you back. God might be bringing something into your life to discipline you. Is there any unconfessed sin in my life? That's the first place you should go. And when God speaks to you about it, confess it and repent and turn from it. By the way, I've been walking with Christ since I was a teenager. Like 40, 50 years. And, and I've experienced this, that when sometimes a pastor says, is there any confession in my life? Man, something comes to my mind right there. You just saw it, whatever it was, and you're still thinking about it. It's a relationship, it's a person, it's a, it's a habit, it's an action, and it's right there. God brought it to your mind. That's what you need to deal with today. You may not need to hear anything else I have to say. God has shown you by his Holy Spirit, there's an unconfessed sin in your life, you need to confess it to him. And turn from it and receive his forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Second question, how might God use this trial to glorify himself? How might God use this trial to glorify himself? God uses trials to give me an opportunity to, to glorify him. The story in John chapter 9 of the, the boy who was born blind. The Bible says as he was passing by in John chapter 9, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples questioned, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. Can I paraphrase that? This young man was born blind because God's going to get the glory through his life. And we don't understand the why, but we know that God wants to get the glory through his life. And that's what Jesus said about him. I mentioned Johnny Erickson Tata last last week, last couple of weeks, uh, about her her testimony. In in the 1960s, she dove into a pond and and broke her neck, and she became a quadriplegic. And she's lived since since the 60s that way in her life. And this is what what she said. She founded Wheels for the World. Some of our church ministries have taken place using uh, being a part of that ministry providing wheelchairs for underprivileged. This is what Johnny said. She said, my accident where she became paralyzed, my accident was not a punishment for my wrongdoing, whether I deserved it or not. Only God knows why I was paralyzed. Maybe he knew I'd be ultimately happier serving him. And if I were still on my feet, it's hard to say how things might have been. So here's a gal as a teenager whose neck was broken. And she says, I don't know why, but I know that God's used it for his glory. Sometimes God lets you go through, whether it's a Hurricane Harvey or a cancer in the family or another crisis or a trial of persecution where people outside the church slander you, and that's what Peter's addressing, so that God can get the glory simply by my response to the trial. 
I don't ever advocate us putting on a Pollyanna face and pretend like everything's all right. Praise Jesus, I lost my house. Praise Jesus, my spouse died. Hallelujah. I, I, I advocate being transparent and saying, I'm struggling with this. I don't get it. I don't understand it. And I, I wish I had answers, but I don't. But you know what? I'm still going to trust him. How might God use that trial to bring glory to himself? And number three, is God giving me an opportunity to point someone to Christ? Could it be that God's allowed you to go through this trial so that you can point someone to Christ? I love the story of Paul and Silas in the book of Acts, chapter 16. I'm going I'm to read that portion to you because it's, it's just an incredible. We've looked at this before recently. They're arrested. They're thrown in prison. I'll just pick up in verse 20. Let me see. Verse 19. 19. Do we have 19 up there? No. Well, you just listen, okay? I'll skip down to verse 22. Then the mob joined in the attack against them, and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them beaten with rods, Paul and Silas. After they inflicted many blows on them, they threw them into jail, ordering the jailer to keep them securely guarded. Receiving such an order, he put them in an inner prison and secured their feet in stocks. Verse 25 now. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. What? They've just been beaten. They've just been put in prison. They've just been put in stocks. What would you be doing? I know what I'd be doing. I'd be wham, 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 right? Somebody call a ambulance. I'd be whining about it. The Bible says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken. Immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains came loose. Verse 27, when the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. And again, if I'd have been Paul and Silas and the earthquake happened and changed, I'd be out the door. I'd be, I'd be, hallelujah, let's get out of here. But Paul called out in a loud voice, don't harm yourself because all of this, I'm, all, because all of us are here. The jailer called for the lights, rushed in, fell down, trembling Paul and Silas. The Bible goes on to say that they shared Christ with him. He said, what do I need to do? And he said, believe in the Lord Jesus. And it's a picture that in the midst of this trial that Paul and Silas are going to, they stop. They're not angry at the persecutor. They're praying for an opportunity to share Christ with him. Sometimes we're oppressed, slandered, persecuted by somebody outside the faith, and we want God to get them. You ever pray one of those prayers? God, shut them up. Take that away from them. Make them miserable. You've never prayed like that? Read the Psalms. God's people prayed like that. It's not the right way to pray, but you're just saying, I, I don't, here's the key. To not judge the person, to not to want God's retribution for that person, but in love to be present, to be used by God, to care for that person. Could it be that the trial that is in your life right now, could it be that God wants you to use this trial to share Christ with someone in need? Expect trials. They're going to come our way. Embrace them. 
Take this as an opportunity to examine our life. And then number four, entrust yourself to God. Entrust yourself to God. Look at verse 19. So those who suffer according to God's will should, while doing what is good, entrust themselves to a faithful creator. Here's the key. Entrust yourself to God. Entrust is a banking term. It means to to deposit for safekeeping. Isn't that good? What's the FDIC, whatever that's called? You put your money in the bank and they say, we're going to guarantee it up to a certain deal. That hasn't always worked, but that's the same term. you, You deposit your funds in the bank for good keeping. Here's what Peter says. Entrust yourself to the creator. Put your life in his hands for safekeeping. When you can't trace the results, you just trust the Redeemer. When you can't see his hand in your life, trust his heart. He knows what's best. And here's something that we say this all the time around here. God does not have to explain himself to us. Remember the story of Job? I mentioned Job earlier. Toward the end of the book in chapter 38, the Lord answered Job from a whirlwind and he said, Who is this that obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Well, that's a big one. Here's Job's been whining, struggling, answer, asking questions. God said, who's this that's asking me questions? And then he says this, get ready to answer me like a man. Some translations say, Job, brace yourself. When I question you, you will inform me. Job, where were you when I established the earth? Tell me. Tell me if you understand. Who fixed its dimensions? Certainly you know, Job. Come on, tell me. I'm adding that. It's not in the scripture. Who stretched out a measuring line across it? What supports its foundations? Who laid its cornerstones while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And read the rest of Job. That's, I love the end from 38 to the end. God is just saying, Job, you wouldn't get it because I'm God and you're not. It's okay to question It's okay to say, God, I don't get it. I don't understand. But ultimately, God does not have to explain himself to me. I love Max Lucado's story of his two little girls. And one was a five-year-old riding her bicycle. And the three-year-old saw that and said, I want a bicycle like hers. And he explained to his daughter, Andrea, who's three years old, you're not ready to ride a two-wheeler. It's not time yet. And she whined and she whined and she whined. And then he said, you're not going to get a two-wheeler because I'm your daddy. And he just firmly said, daddy knows best. That's true, isn't it? He was protecting her. Daddy knows best. He was trying to keep her from falling down and getting hurt. Daddy knows best. And she stomped her feet and said, then I want a new daddy. (laughs) Did you ever do that? God, my heavenly father, Peter mentions he's creator. I think that's significant. Who created the universe. That's what took me back to Job 38. God, God, my creator knows what's best. And sometimes I stomp my feet. Folks, there's no other new daddy out there that's going to care for you like your heavenly father does. Something else as we think about just entrusting ourselves to God. This this is so good in verse 14. If you're ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. In the midst of the trial, the spirit of God is there. He's with you. 
One of the names for this Holy Spirit is paraclete, one who comes alongside us. In the midst of the trial, Peter's reminding us, God rests with you. God's spirit is with you. He is there even though you don't know it. The psalmist said in Psalm 139, where can I go to escape your spirit if I flee from your presence? If I go to the heaven, you're there. If I go to my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I go to the eastern horizon, you're there. If I settle to the western limits, even there, your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold me. God is always there in the midst of the trial. I love that. Some of you have... uh, it's such a popular poem, the poem about footprints, about the two footprints in the sand, and then there's just one set, and it's where I carried you. And I love the variation of that poem. And then later, they saw these two trenches in the sand. And then the guy said, what's that? That's where I drug you. Sometimes that's us, right? It's not so peaceful. But to know God is there in our midst. I love what Corey Tin Boone said from Ravensbrook Death Camp, a concentration camp, during Nazi Germany's reign, she said, there is no pit so deep that the love of God, the love of Christ is not deeper. God wants us to learn to trust him. Entrust yourself to him. Trust in the Lord, the writer of Proverbs said, with all your heart, don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will direct your paths. Trust in him. I love the story about the elderly woman who was crippled with arthritis and she hobbled to church on crutches every week. It was an ordeal for her just to show up at church. She's asked by a friend about her regular church attendance. How is it that you do that? She said, well, she said, here's the deal. She said, my heart gets there first, and then my old legs just follow. That's entrusting yourself. That's saying, God, my heart is with you. I want this other stuff to follow. C.S. Lewis said this. Imagine yourself living in a house. God comes in to rebuild that house. It's a good picture of the Christian life, right? God comes in. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting it, the drains right and, and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised by that. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building a quite different house from the one that you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting out an extra floor there. He's running up towers. He's making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. And he's building a palace that he intends to come and live in it himself. Let him do it. Let him reshape you. Let him... Let him use the trials of your life to shape a, a dwelling place fit for the glory of God. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the story, the three Hebrews in the furnace. And, and basically what they said is, look, Nebuchadnezzar, if, if, if we die, that's fine. We'll be with, with the Lord. If we get rescued, we'll live. It's a win-win for us. And he didn't know what to do with that. And I love what Warren Wiersbe said about that. He said, when God puts his children in the furnace, he keeps his hand on the thermostat and his eye on the thermometer. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you've been through. I don't know what you may go through. But I know this. God has his eye on the thermometer. He will control the trial for his glory. And ultimately, it might be for your good. Let's pray together.